0: Uh, as Pastor Sean had said, we are uh, just thinking a little bit about what it means to, uh, to scatter, what it means for us to go into our communities, into our neighborhoods, and uh, what it means for us to love our neighbors and love them well. Uh, and of course, in loving them well, we need to understand who we are as people, uh, who we are as individuals, and, and therein, of course, lies the rub right? Uh, what we believe about who we are as humans uh, runs counter to what our culture believes we are as humans, and we're going to talk about that uh, as we uh, get into the text. Now, I do want to uh, uh, ask you all to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and I, I sound like, like I am going into like a time portal here um, so, uh, I would just be gracious as we get it all adjusted and everything. Um, I am not a Klingon. Um, and so, I just want to make sure that y'all know that. But let's turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And when you're there, say, I'm there. All right, Genesis chapter 1. If you're not there, uh, it's the first page. Um, <laughs> so, so no worries. Uh, you'll you'll find it soon. Genesis chapter one, beginning of verse one: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. and The darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. Now let's fast forward through the week here. Let's go to verse 26. In verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. and He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So... God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And Now let's pray that God would give us wisdom and insight to understand his word, that we may not only live it uh, and believe it, but that we may uphold it in our community. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Help us to understand. Help us, Lord, to grasp everything that you uh, have for us here. Help us, Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Our world is confused. Our world uh, doesn't know. And, and that's no reason for us to, uh, to, to beat our chests and 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 toot our own horns or anything like that. But rather, it's it's an opportunity for us to be humble and to lovingly proclaim the truth. And we pray, Lord, that we would do just that and that your Spirit would move through us to open the eyes of our neighbors. That they may see reality. They may see things as they really are. Christ in the center of it all. We need your help. So please, Lord, help us. In this day and age, what we're going to think through in your scriptures is opposed on pretty much every single word. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity of thought, and give us compassionate hearts, that we may speak the truth and that we may speak the truth in love. For the glory of Christ, we pray, amen. Well, as you heard Pastor Sean say this morning, uh, we're going to talk about how uh, we as a church um, are to bear witness to Christ in our communities. Uh, In order to do that, we are to obey the first and second commandments, the first and second great commandments. If you remember the scene in Matthew, I believe it was in Matthew 22, Jesus was confronted uh, with a religious ruler. Uh, And the religious ruler just point blank asked him, uh, obviously to test him, uh, what's the greatest commandment? I mean, of all the commandments that are there, I believe it was the rabbi Maimonides who came up with the number like 613, 614 commandments. Of all of them, which one is the greatest of them all? It doesn't even seem like Jesus batted an eye. Jesus said the greatest commandment of them all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Drawing from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Uh, We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all our soul and all our strength. And he said the second one is like unto it, which is interesting. Think about that. What commandment could possibly be right up there with love God? Do you hear what Jesus is doing with this second commandment? He's saying, love God is the highest command. It is the greatest one. And the second one, maybe two, maybe we could even venture to say one B to that, is love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. In other words, all of the Old Testament, or in other words, in Jesus' day, all of the Bible that was written at that time could be summed up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourselves. That's massive. Now, here's the thing. I don't know many people that would dispute that in our culture. Maybe they might dispute the love God part, right? We, we, we don't, mm, you know, we live in a culture that isn't all that fond of, of, of our Lord God. But love your neighbor? Yeah, sure. Love our neighbor as ourselves? Yeah. Be kind to people. Be nice to people. Be generous to people. All of that's fine. Here's the problem, though. Our culture doesn't totally get what people are. That's the problem. So if we don't totally understand who God is, and thus we won't love him with all our heart, soul, and strength, and if we don't totally understand who people are, then we are going to be faulty, and, and, and we're going to err in how we love our neighbors as ourselves. You cannot love people that you don't fully know, and that's our problem. Our culture says that we are to be nice to people, our culture says that we are to tolerate people, our culture says that we are to coexist with people, and so on, but we don't define what people are. So we don't know exactly how we are to love people well. Think about this building that we live in, that we're, we're gathering in right now, okay? There's a reason that you walked into this building. You walked into this building, uh, among other reasons, one big reason that you walked into this building is because you believe that for the time that we will be here in this building, the ceiling is not going to collapse on your head. Right? We hope... That the same will be said of our new building down the street <laughs> once once it's done build, uh, being built and everything that we can walk in it and everything and we can dance around and all I'm sorry but not, I forgot we're Baptist. we we can we can worship the Lord together and and we can have a great time fellowshipping without any fear that the building is going to collapse right on us okay it might you know uh, uh, but but hopefully not this might but. More than likely, it's not going to. Why? Because behind these walls, behind the brick and all the veneer and everything, are support beams. These support beams are built in such a way that this entire auditorium is able to stand up and we will be perfectly fine. Well, it's the same thing in our culture. Our culture is held up by certain support beams. Certain ideas, certain premises that that our culture believes we can build our entire lives and our entire civilization around these things. We can build them on these support beams, these dominant ideas that run our culture. These dominant ideas are not just abstract thoughts, but they're actually the way that we think about each other as humans and the way that we relate to each other as humans in this society. Let me give four of them, just so that you you you'd think about this. Four of them, and we'll we'll put them up here. Uh, these dominant ideas of society are individualism, rationalism, utilitarianism, and consumerism. Now, all of a sudden, see, you were perfectly fine this whole time, and now you're going to start creaking on me, completely ruining my illustration. I tell you, um, <laughs> I am. No lie, I'm a little bit concerned here, but, but I'll be fine, I'll be fine. Four different ideas, perfect timing. Um, individualism, rationalism, utilitarianism, and consumerism. What, what, what's, what's up with this? Well, think about this. Our culture believes that at the core of everything is this concept of individualism. That is, we believe that at the core of our existence the most fundamental relationship that we have is our relationship to ourselves. My relationship to me is the most fundamental relationship that I have. And so therefore, I look at everything in the world in relation to myself. What does this have to do with me? How does this benefit me? What good is this for me? That's that's our culture, right? Can we nod our heads on that? We can agree on that. That, That's what drives us. We're driven by my relationship to me. And that leads to rationalism. In a rational idea, only what I think is real. So if I'm at the core of my existence, then things are real or things are important only in as much as they connect with me. It's an interesting thing, you know. Uh, Think about this just as a a little rebuttal of that. Um, How are things for the people in Singapore right now? In this culture and in this worldview, the answer that we would have is, who cares? Who cares? What does this have to do with me? It doesn't have anything to do with me. Therefore, it doesn't matter. That's rationalism mixed with individualism. So long as my thinking and my senses can understand and process all of this, with my individualism, it has me at the center of it all, then it matters. If it, if it doesn't cross those two, uh, uh, those two uh, uh, ch- or check those two boxes, then, then it doesn't matter to me. And therefore, I can live my life totally uh, uh, not thinking about anything that's going on outside of me at all. Individualism, rationalism, along with that is utilitarianism. It is important to me, or maybe even we'll say it in ethical terms, it is right or it is wrong only in as much as I find it valuable and useful in satisfying my own desires. Do I want to do it? Do I want to be with this person? Do I want to care? What's in it for me? What do I gain by being in this relationship? What do I gain by caring for these folks over here? What do I gain by loving people who are different from me? What do I gain from all of these things? If the answer is zero, then I don't care. And it's actually wrong for me to to do these types of things. I should focus on the things that I should should care about, the things that will actually benefit me. That's utilitarianism. And then lastly, consumerism, which says what you want and what you care for should be readily accessible without restrictions or limitations. Think about it this way. I was uh, looking the other day at uh, stands for my desk uh, stands for, uh, for my, my tablet here, um, where I could have the tablet on the stand and I could have like my keyboard or whatever and I could type my keyboard and, and so on and the stand would be sitting up and all that. And wouldn't you know, I went onto Amazon and I found like 20 different versions of that. That's awesome, right? Or y'all have felt this way too. Y'all have, y'all have looked for a pair of jeans, and you've gone to target or whatever and you found you know that there are a, an amazing array of jeans i go over to target and i find relaxed jeans i find slim fit jeans i find you know uh, athletic jeans kind of the baggy jeans kind of the, the skinny jeans and and all of these different things and i can choose which ones i want i want jeans well here are all of these different varieties of jeans that you can have that's consumerism You know, you can have it at your leisure, whatever you want. This is the world for you. Well, think about how each of these ideas undergird our society. You've seen this, haven't you? Now, I want to push in a little bit further. Think about how these ideas have shaped the way we understand each other. The way we relate to one another. Even the way that we connect with one another in terms of our own bodies. Think about how our culture's understanding of sexuality is undergirded by these four pillars. Think about the fact that uh, we talk about people in terms of the way that they express themselves sexually and they say, well, I should be able to express myself sexually any way that I want to express myself. I identify according to my own desires and my own tastes. Biology doesn't tell me who I am. Society doesn't tell me who I am. The only one who can tell me who I am is me. And I choose to identify gender-wise, sexuality-wise, however I want to. That is individualism at its core. You see what's going on there? And nobody should be able to stop me. I should be able to satisfy my sexual desires without any type of restrictions, without any type of limitations. If I want it, then I should have it all the way to the full, which is why we can have Tinder. And why we could have a few years ago Ashley Madison, and why we can have, you know, Playboy, and why we can have all of these other different things. This marketplace that is now existing in our culture and has existed for many, many years that says, you can satisfy your desires. We are not the ones to judge. You do you, you get into the stuff that you get into, and there's no reason for anybody to restrict you. By the way, you do realize that Christmas. For for wealthy, you know, uh, rich, very, uh, uh, you know, uh, rich, wealthy folks with very, very big sexual appetites, you do realize that Christmas is just a couple weeks from now. What do I mean by that? Well, the Super Bowl is actually one of the uh, uh, the highlights of the year when it comes to prostitution. Wherever the Super Bowl lands, prostitution skyrockets every year. That's, that's a fact. I, I remember when uh, Annie and I and the kids, we were living in uh, Fort Worth. I was doing my master's uh, over at Southwestern Seminary. And uh, the Super Bowl just happened to be in Jerry World uh, that, uh, while we were there. It was also great. God had a wonderful sense of humor because we had a crazy, crazy snow uh, right on the week of the Super Bowl. It was also the week that Micaiah was born. And, uh, and and so we went through, there was 11 inches of snow that we got in Fort Worth in one day. It was great. And it was Super Bowl week. And so you had all these folks that were like, well, I'm not going out in this. I mean, they're Texan. They've never seen snow before in their lives. And so they're just like, What, what is? what is this? stuff falling from the sky, the, the clouds are falling, I don't know what's going on, and so they were all, you know, crazy, you know, going in a frenzy and everything, and, and we're over here, you know, the Marylander and the Pennsylvanian, and we're just like, this is called snow, and it's not even that much, 11 inches is like a two-hour delay, you know, <laughs> but, but that's how it was there, but, but during that week, with all the winter weather and all of these different things... We were put on high alert because we had some friends that were engaged in these types of things, uh, justice issues and and so on, for uh, trafficking and everything, and they said, this is a week where we need to pray, and if you're able to, where you need to fast, because millions upon millions of dollars are transferred in the name of prostitution, Super Bowl week. Yeah. Uh, This is the world. You know what we call that? We call that consumerism. So living in an individualistic, rationalistic, utilitarian, consumeristic world, guess what happens to our understanding of humanity? Our understanding of humanity becomes not one where we think of others as persons, but one where we think of others as products. You're a product. I only care for you in as much as you scratch an itch that I have. I only care about you in as much as you are able to provide something beneficial for me. That's not person-to-person relationship. That's person-to-product relationship. Social media has taken this and magnified it in exponential ways. As you see people who use their bodies now, uh, uh, whether we're talking TikTok, whether we're talking Snapchat, Instagram, whatever, where people are using their bodies now, pretty much embracing the, 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 uh, the business model of social media that says the people are the product. And so they say, well, if the people are the product, then I should be able to make some money off of this. And so they use their bodies in promotion for all kinds of different goods and services and so on. Some even uh, uh, using their bodies in very suggestive ways. Whatever it takes for me to make another dollar, whatever it makes for me uh, uh, to, uh, to get another buck, that's what this is all about. The people have become the product. And that's the way that we relate to one another. Now the question is, can you see how in this society with these pillars that we would be off the rails when it comes to sexuality and we would be off the rails when it comes to the value of human life? can, can you see that? If these are the, the support beams of this society then certainly we are going to struggle when it comes to understanding the value of human life. And that is exactly what we've seen in our culture almost from day one. But The scriptures give us a better better vision, don't they? God gives us better support beams uh, for how we relate to one another. God has given us a greater vision for humanity One that places uh, uh, our, our, our value and our worth not in the category of what's in it for me or what's in it for others, but it places our value and our identity and our personhood in the very person of God himself. We are not defined in regards to our relationship to ourselves as the most fundamental relationship of everything, but rather we are defined in terms of our relationship to God the most fundamental relationship that we have is not our relationship to ourselves, but our relationship to our creator. The value that we have as human beings is not in regards to our usefulness to everybody around us uh, and what we can provide for other people, what we can do for other people, but our value is rooted in who we are as created by our almighty God. So let's look at the scriptures and let's see then how God created us, why each one of us are valuable, and therefore what the implications will be when we consider the most vulnerable around us, the unborn, and how we use our bodies uh, in, uh, sexually for the glory of God. Okay. Are, are you all still with me? I know, this, this, is, this isn't, you know, Cheez-Its or anything like that. We're, 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 we're eating meatloaf today, and, and it, may, it may sit like a thud in our bellies, and that's okay. That's all right. If you don't get seconds, that's all right. Um, but but let's, let's jump in. First, let's look at our personhood, our value, our inherent worth, and so on. And it's right here in this text in Genesis chapter twi- uh, gen- uh, Genesis chapter 1, beginning of verse 26. Look again, verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Do you notice he doesn't say that about anything, anyone else in creation? Anything else in creation? Only of humans does God say, I want to make them in my image. Somebody likened it to a temple. God lays out creation like a builder would build a temple. And in every temple, there's going to be some type of image of the God of the temple, the God that is worshipped there in the temple. And it seems here that God has made this world, this creation, as his temple. The universe is his temple. The earth is his temple, And God wants an image of himself in the temple so that all would recognize he is the God of this temple. And the image bearers that God has placed in that temple, he calls humans. Humans, you, me, we bear the image of God. Now, what does that mean that we bear the image of God? There's some wrong ways of, of thinking about this. A common wrong way of thinking about this is to say that our image bearing is connected to our functioning in society. Here's why I think that's wrong I think that's wrong because then it places the image of God on a scale. Some people function better in society than others. Some people uh, are are born with limitations, and they're born with handicaps, and so on, so that they are not able to function as well in society as those who have all of their faculties, and so on. Does that make that person less the image of God than a person who isn't, or a person who has everything? Well, no. That's not what Scripture teaches at all. It's not based on your function in society. Uh, let me let, let me let me let me just. Put the car and park on this for just a minute, because, because this is a really, really important point. If it is based on our function, then you could say that the unborn are less uh, image bearers than, you know, the born. Because what is the unborn's function in society? Hi. Our, 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 the unborn's function in society is is Nothing. There's, there's no you know, benefit, no contribution to society except for maybe the preserving of it because if there are no babies, there is no society, right? Uh, but, but but besides that, what is the function in society? It's very limited. How about we go to the other side of life? How about we talk about a person who is bedridden in a hospital who's uh, who's who's breathing their final breaths? What value is that person contributing to society? Very little compared to the person who's working nine to five, Monday through Friday, and so on. So is that person then less the image of God than the able-bodied person? No. We would not say that. Amen. Rather, your personhood, your value, your image-bearing, if you will, is baked into who we are as human beings. It's about our humanity. It's about the, the way that God created us. Okay, So what does that mean then? That means that if you were born in the sticks, if you were born in the hood, you weren't born in the right community, in the right neighborhood, to the right parents with the right income and the right skin color and all of these different things, you are no less the image of God as the person who was born on the right side of tracks, quote-unquote. All of us bear the image of God. Young and old, hair and bald. <laughs> hey, Hunter, how you doing? Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, rich and poor. You know, suburbs and herbs, sticks and hood, and all of that. All of us bear the image of God. My value as a human being is placed on me because I bear the image of God. When do you get the image of God? You get the image of God the more, the moment you become human. When are you human? Uh, day one. (laughs) You are human by virtue of the fact that you were conceived by humans. And that makes you human. And if you're human, you have the image of God. And if you have the image of God, you are a person. Why do I say that? Well, first off, we are a person because God is personal. (laughs) Our God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if he made you to bear his image, then he made you to share in that personal relationship. You have personhood as well. Notice he says in there, uh, in verse 27, so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Pronouns are very important. Of course, our culture is just now, you know, waking up to that. Uh, perhaps a little sideways, but, but they're, they're getting, you know, the idea that pronouns mean something. Here's the thing. Pronouns have meant something from creation. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Interestingly, he doesn't say he created it. You know, in chapter 2, that before God breathed into the nostrils of Adam, Adam was a clump of dirt. I know, I know. We remember the nursery rhyme where the little boy's made of what are little boys made of? Uh, what was this? Sticks and snails and puppy dog tails. That's what little boys are made of. You know, um, and we're like, yeah, and I'm proud of it too. <laughs> uh, but, 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 you, but you think there, there is a little bit of truth to that. What, what, are, what are we made of? Dirt. That's what we're made of. We're made of dirt. Yes. Before he was a he, he was dirt, then God breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living being. He became a living soul. Dirt became human. Okay. Here we see God takes this, this man, and it says he created him. It, dirt on the ground, became him. And then, just in case you're wondering that that's just specific to one particular gender, the very next line, male And female, he created them. My personhood is wrapped up into my being created in the image of God. (laughs) Because I am in the image of God, I am a person. And notice male is no more the image of God than female. That's not biblical. Male and female. He created them. So, you, you, you're putting some pieces here together. We've got male bearing the image of God. We've got female bearing the image of God. Then he says in verse 28, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now you say, what in the world does he mean by be fruitful and multiply? Well, be fruitful and multiply means make babies. That's what it means. Okay? Uh, go! Knock yourselves out! Have fun! You know? Enjoy! You know? And, and all of that. Well, it may be a shock to some of you that, that we didn't invent sex. That's not our idea. That was God's idea. There was no sex before God made it. He invented it, okay? And so if he invented it, then he's the one who knows more than anyone in all the universe what will bring maximum joy, what will bring maximum pleasure, and so on. And he gives that To the man and the woman. We know in chapter 2 that he uh, brings it into the context of marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Two becoming one flesh is at the very least sexually. Husband and wife joining together, being fruitful, multiplying, fill the earth and subduing it. And God has given that. But notice that when he does that, when he blesses them with bearing children and being fruitful and multiplying and having all kinds of of fun together as husband and wife physically and even being knit together in their souls, as Song of Solomon would say, the one whom my soul loves and, and everything in there. Notice what he's also doing. He's also reproducing his image all throughout the earth. I want you to see that. Look at at chapter 5. Flip to Genesis 5. Genesis chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. He says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, okay? So in whose likeness was Adam created? In God's likeness, right? So when he has a son, and that son bears his likeness, in whose likeness is the son? God's. You see what's going on? So bearing children is the reproducing of the image of God all throughout the world. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, right? Have dominion in what way? By raising up and uh, 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 by conceiving and bearing and raising up and sending out more and more of my image bearers. Right now, there are 7 billion images of God all throughout the world. Image bearing human beings all throughout the world. Do we represent Him well in the world? No. We know the story. There's this thing called sin. And sin has corrupted us and sin has, 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 has wrecked our relationships and wrecked uh, the way that we relate to one another. And yet at the same time, there is in some way, shape, or form, just by virtue of the fact that we are human, we still bear the image of God. Okay? So, God reproduces His image Through the reproducing of humans, male and female, all throughout the world. Now, what are the implications then when it comes to the unborn? Well, we see from the scriptures that our personhood is connected not to uh, our function in society, but to our composition, if you will, as human beings. God has made us valuable. As humans, because we bear His image, that's why in Genesis chapter nine, uh, the the Lord would say to Noah that anyone who takes uh, the life of a man, his life is required of him, because man was created in God's image. Genesis nine five and six and so forth. And so this matters then. So then, when we see a baby being knit together in his mother's womb, please understand that what you are seeing is the forming of an image-bearer of God. And so to take away the life of an unborn child is not just to take away the life of a mass of tissue or anything like that. It is the taking away of an image-bearer's life. It is the taking away of a person's life. You do realize right now in, the, in, in uh, scientific studies and philosophical studies, the debate isn't over whether a baby in the womb is human. It's kind of hard to deny that. What else would it be? A rhinoceros? I mean, what, what, what else would be growing in the womb you know, of a human being but another human? That was a, 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 an effective argument, at least in terms of public opinion, for several years. But, you know, DNA and ultrasounds and all of that have kind of wrecked that idea and that argument. And so what they say is, no, 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 it's a human, we'll, we'll concede that it's a human, thank you, Captain Obvious, but, but, but here's what we'll, uh, what we'll debate. We'll debate over whether this human is worth protecting because this human is not yet a person. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of stuff that would make my blood boil. Who are you to say that a human being is not a person? Who are you to say that that you are the determiner of whether a human being has personhood and therefore whose lives should be protected? Who are you to stand in the place of God? And say that you are the ones that, that, that can say with a, with a flick of the wrist, this person's life is worth saving and this person's life is not worth saving. Who are you? We've lived in the world of holocausts. and We've lived in a world of slavery and Jim Crow. And we've lived in a world of concentration camps. And we've lived in a world of, 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 of chemical warfare on citizens and, and all of these different things. We want to stand in that category and say, we want to determine whose life is worth it and whose life isn't? Or should we instead look and say, my life is not my own and your life is not your own. We are here by, by the good will of our God who made us. And when he made us, he put his image on us and said, you are mine. And you will bear my image in this world. And therefore, every life should be protected. Every life is worth saving. Every life is worth living. Because every life bears the image of God in some way or another. Okay? Are we tracking on this? I talk too much. And so I don't have a lot of time to deal with, uh, with, with, the, with the, the part of sexuality, which I'm sure is why, why you came, um, but, but I do want to look at, at a passage really quickly just to see why this, why this matters and how understanding that we don't begin with ourselves, but we begin with God who created us and so on, the implications that that would have for sexuality. So let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When you're there, Sam there. I know it's a little more difficult than the first page. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And let's look at this really quickly. Paul is talking to the Corinthians, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were jacked up. <laughs> the Corinthians had all kinds of drama going on, all kinds of issues, and so on. And Paul had to had to work some things out, straighten some things out there in the congregation. And as you would expect, one of the things that he had to straighten out was sexual immorality, all right? You had folks in the congregation in Corinth that were sleeping around, all right? Uh, whether you had the guy in chapter five who's sleeping with his father's wife, whether that's his Stepmom or whatever, I really don't want to know. But whatever's going on in there, it's gross. Okay, and so Paul is dealing with that in chapter 5. And now here in chapter 6, he's dealing more broadly with the idea of sexual immorality. And notice what he says in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Notice the all things are lawful for me are in quotes. He's responding to something that they had said to him. So they're going, wait, 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 wait. we're believers and everything. We're not under the law or anything like that. We're free to live any way we want to live. Kind of like what you heard in Romans, in Romans 6 in particular. And Paul's going, nope, that's not how this works. (laughs) Uh, Being freed by Christ does not mean that you're free to live your life any way you want to live your life. And do you notice also that one of the main reasons that people want to live freely any way they want to live is so that they can get a pass when it comes to their sexuality, Nine times out of ten, the reason that people want the rules to be laxed when it comes to how we are to live the Christian life, nine times out of ten, at least my experience as a pastor over these last uh, several years, has been because there's somebody that they want to sleep with. That's just the way that it typically goes. And certainly that's how it was here in 1 Corinthians 6. So Paul says food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is for food, which again is probably coming from what they're saying. That's their rationale. And he says, but God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, the point that he's making here is that these things are not ends in themselves, but they're means to a greater end. They're not made just simply for our own indulgence and so on, but they're made uh, 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 for us and so on. By our creator. And so therefore we answer to our creator for how we use our bodies and how we use our pleasures. Which is exactly what he says as he moves on. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Note, your body is not arbitrary. Your body is not just for you. Your body is for the Lord. So when you hear people say, my body, my choice, and all of these things that you hear in our culture, that's not rooted in Scripture. There is another layer that goes beyond your body, your choice, and that is God has created your body, and therefore your body belongs fundamentally to Him to use for His good and for His glory and by His design. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Here He's speaking of us who are in Christ, those of us who have come to faith in him. Don't you realize that your body is a member of Christ? In other words, when Jesus has brought us into himself to be uh, uh, our Lord and our Savior, and we find our identity and so on in Christ, do you realize that that is not just for your soul, but that's also for your body? Your body is also in Christ and so how do you use your body in such a way that will glorify Christ he says in verse 15 do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute and Paul says as strongly as he can never in other words just because your soul has been redeemed doesn't mean that you can use your body any way that you want to use your body no my soul has been redeemed and my body is being redeemed and it will be ultimately and fully redeemed at the resurrection of Christ when sin and the curse is taken away and all things will be made new and my body will be glorified never again under the clutches of sin and I am free in my body to live fully for God once and for all. So he says, why would I take my, the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? I, would, I should never want to do that. And prostitute there isn't just talking about prostitution. It's talking about any type of sexual activity outside of marriage. Why would I do that? He says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As we saw in Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. In other words, you don't just have a body that's been joined to Christ, but your spirit has been joined to Christ. And so you should start to think the way that Christ would think, and your heart should uh, should be oriented towards Christ and so on, so that you go, I would never do anything that would dishonor him. I would never want to do anything that would defile my body before him and so forth. And so he goes on to say, flee then. Run from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We wouldn't want to use our bodies or sin against our bodies, violate our bodies. No, don't do that. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our bodies are the Spirit's temple. The living God dwells in me. No, I wouldn't want to use my body in a way that would defile the temple of God. And My body was made for the glory of God. That's why my body is not my own. That's why it was bought with a price so that God would be glorified in me. So therefore, do not turn and use your body for sexual immorality and the sexual desires that go against God's design, but rather use your body for his glory and for his renown. Does that mean that God is against sex? No, it doesn't mean that God's against sex, because actually chapter 7, the very next paragraph, is where God is telling husbands and wives, quit holding back on each other, you know, and all of that. Get together and enjoy the bond that God has created. That's the first five verses of the very next chapter. You can read those on your own. But the point that he's making here is that our bodies are not our own. We belong to him. We are not our own. So we, the, the, the very fundamental premise of our society is already off the rails. It doesn't begin with your relationship with you. It begins with your relationship to your Creator. He made you for His glory. And His glory is your joy. And we find fullest joy when we live fully for the glory of our great God. So, there are two people that I want to think about as I close. One is the person who is struggling with the temptation. Please understand that God is giving you a framework that is so much more satisfying than the lies of our culture. Don't go there. Go with God. Trust that He loves your body more than this world will ever love your body. Trust that He will love your soul far more than this world will ever love your soul. And embrace Him as the one who knows your best, the one who is your best. Trust that He will be the one to keep you. Trust that His Spirit will be the one to sustain you, to give you victory over sin. There's a second group and that group is those who have look at this and and they see it in the rearview mirror because their lives are already marked with uh, the consequences of the fall. Perhaps you were sinned against. Perhaps you chose this path. I'm so reminded of the beginning of 1 Corinthians 6. We saw the end of First Corinthians 6, but in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells us who he's talking to. Why don't you just look up there real quick. He says, do you not know in verse 9 that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, uh, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Thank you, Ranjor. That's good news. I, I'm I'm so glad that you assure my heart that way. No, 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 there's more to this passage. There's more to it. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Guess who Paul's talking to? He's talking to those who had engaged their lives in sexual immorality. Perhaps he's talking to some who have committed abortions. Perhaps he's talking to some who have had all kinds of of, of choices that they've made in their lives, and, and they know what's up. They know the stains. They know everything that's happened in their lives. And Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What does that mean for you? That means that if this is the story that you have lived, if this is a part of your life, and so on, it's not the end of the story. (laughs) The end of the story is Jesus ruling and reigning, washing you over, and and sanctifying you, and clothing you with His justifying righteousness, and so on. You don't have to end there. You can live for the glory of God. You can embrace His plan for your life from here on out. Why? Because Jesus is the one who gives us all that we need to be made clean before Him. You can be washed. You can be holy, sanctified before our God. You, God looks at you, and He looks at me, all of us sinners, and He says, righteous. Why? Because of us? No, totally because of Christ. So trust Him. Embrace Him. Embrace the righteousness that He can give. Embrace the holiness that He can give. Embrace the cleansing that He can give. And embrace the life that only He can give. And be set free from sin. Be set free to live fully for Him in His glory forever. You are not your own. You belong, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus. Father, we have a responsibility to live in a manner worthy of Christ. May we walk each day by your grace. May we live each day knowing that we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Father, I pray that in so doing it would cultivate in us a heart of compassion for our neighbors. May we know the truth and may we communicate the truth in love. This is not the end of the story. You have a much better story. Lord, if there's any that is here that does not believe in Jesus, or at least didn't before, Lord, I pray that what we've seen in Your Word would be so crystal clear to them. That Jesus is the way. That they would turn from their sin. They would turn fully to Jesus. say You, Lord, please take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. It's all Yours. Right now, Lord, there are some who are with you. I ask, Lord, that you would um, that you would assure them of your presence. Perhaps there are some that have names and pictures in their mind. Of those who are burdened with their past, perhaps they're burdened with their present. Lord, I pray that you would use them to uh, to model the good news of Christ, to share that good news with them, that they too would be free. Perhaps there are some who are here that have been burdened themselves with their past or with their present. Lord, I pray by your grace, set them free. Set us all free. Right now, I want you to spend some time just cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I pray that you would take it all. My body, my soul, may it all be yours. Then we will sing together in praise of our great God who has set us free.